This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to this evening's event. Uh, my name is Frances Boone. I'm the Executive Manager of the Andrew and Renata Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at the University of New South Wales, and it's my pleasure to chair this evening's event. As we begin, we acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, and pay respect to their elders past and present. We would very much like to thank Allens for hosting tonight's event on a topic that has captured the world's attention, the Syria refugee crisis. In early 2012, just over three years ago, I myself was sitting with a group of recently arrived Syrian refugees in Jordan, where I was working with an NGO, uh, where we were sitting and discussing why it was that they were reluctant to enrol their children in school in Jordan. The reason was not at all that they thought education to be unimportant, uh, but rather because they held on to the hope that by the beginning of the next school year, they'd be able to return to Syria. and that their children would not have to go through the difficulty of uh, integrating into an unfamiliar school and community. But now, more than three years on, it seems abundantly clear with the conflict in its fifth year that these families, together with the four million other individuals who've become refugees from Syria and the 7.6 million internally displaced within Syria, will not be able to return to the life that they knew before any time soon. Like many conflicts, the Syrian civil war has had massive and devastating impacts for these individuals and families, like the ones that I've just mentioned. But it also has profound uh, and perhaps unprecedented implications for the Middle East region, for the international community, and for the international refugee protection regime. And this evening's event seeks to examine the Syria crisis from some of these different perspectives and to explore its implications in Syria itself, in the Middle East, Europe, and here in Australia. And we have with us an eminent panel of experts to discuss this topic with us this evening. Our first uh, uh, speaker will be Dr. Anthony Billingsley. He is a senior lecturer in the School of Social Sciences at UNSW, uh, where he has been since 2004 and teaches the politics of international law and Middle East politics and civilization. Prior to becoming an academic, Anthony worked with the Office of National Assessments as an Iraq analyst and with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, uh, with postings including Beirut, Cairo and Damascus. He's also worked at the higher colleges of technology in the UAE and with Westpac. Anthony has many publications to his credit, including a book, Political Succession in the Arab World, and various works on the Gaza conflict and Middle East law and politics. His current research focus is on trauma as a factor in Middle East politics, international law in the Middle East, and the regional politics of Qatar and the Kurds of Iraq. Our second speaker this evening will be Thomas Albrecht, who is UNHCR's regional representative for Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific. There his role is to work with governments and other partners to promote protection, assistance and durable solutions for all persons of concern to UNHCR. Thomas joined UNHCR in 1987 and has worked in refugee situations in the Eastern Horn of Africa, 
Southern Africa, West Africa, the Americas, as well as Eastern and Central Europe. He was the UNHCR representative in Ghana, the deputy regional representative uh, at the UNHCR regional office in the USA and the Caribbean, and the head of the UNHCR regional support hub in Nairobi. He was also posted at UNHCR's headquarters in Geneva, where, um, as part of his, his assignment, he was the principal editor of the UNHCR Resettlement Handbook, which is the authoritative guide to third country resettlement policy and practice, which may be of great relevance to us this evening. Our third speaker will be Professor Jane McAdam, who is Scientia Professor of Law and Director of the Andrew and Renata Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. She is an Australian Research Council Future Fellow, a non-resident senior fellow in foreign policy at the Brookings Institution, a research associate at Oxford University's Refugee Studies Centre, and an associated senior fellow at the Fridtjof Nansen Institute in Norway. Professor McAdam is joint editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Refugee Law, the leading journal in the field, and she serves on a number of international committees, including as co-rapporteur of the International Law Association's Committee on International Law and Sea Level Rise, a member of the consultative committee of the Nansen Initiative on Disaster-Induced Cross-Border Displacement, and a member of the advisory board of the Asia-Pacific Migration and Environment Network. Our fourth speaker will be Paul Power who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Refugee Council of Australia, the national umbrella body for 200 agencies working with refugees and asylum seekers in Australia, a post which he's held since 2006. There he leads the organisation's policy development and public education on refugee issues and its advocacy with the Australian Government, with international networks and with UNHCR. In 2012, Paul was elected to the steering committee of the Asia-Pacific Refugee Rights Network, and he now chairs its Australia, New Zealand and Pacific Working Group. He has served as a member of the Australian Government's Refugee Resettlement Advisory Council and was previously the NGO co-chair of the Working Group on Resettlement and the annual tripartite consultations on resettlement, which are the bodies that bring together UNHCR governments and NGOs from 30 countries to discuss refugee resettlement strategies. Prior to his role with the Refugee Council, Paul developed and managed the St Vincent de Paul Society's social action centres in outer southwestern Sydney and Wollongong. And he previously worked as a communications officer for Caritas Australia and as a newspaper journalist and editor. So as you can see, we have an excellent panel to speak about the topic of the Syrian refugee crisis this evening from a variety of perspectives. Each of our panellists will uh, present for 10 minutes on uh, their area of expertise. Uh, this will then be followed by a moderated discussion amongst panellists and we will then throw the floor open for questions to the audience. Uh, I would like to let you know that this event is being recorded. Uh, we are also live tweeting the event and we encourage you to also tweet using the hashtag SyriaPanel. Uh, the details are on the slide behind me. And with that, I would now like to invite Dr. Anthony Billingsley uh, to speak to us. Thank you, Francis, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm going to give a quick and rather rough uh, rundown of the background to the crisis, um, which the refugee issue is, of course, perhaps the most tragic and um, evident manifestation. Um, I'm going to give it a slightly historical bent because 
we're all prisoners of history to an extent, but I think the Syrians are particularly, and I wanted to bring that out. Um, we have time for questions at the end. If I do cut corners too much uh, and lose you, please interrupt and I'll try and make myself clearer. Uh, what I'd like to do is leave you with the impression that this is not a battle between baddies and baddies, uh, but rather a struggle between groups, uh, groups of people who are increasingly forced into very uncomfortable corners by pressure of events. Um, of course, there are very, very nasty individuals and very nasty groups uh, involved in all sides, and I use the word all deliberately, um, who have commit, committed some of the most horrific human right, uh, violations of human dignity and for which some form of retribution should be um, exacted. But there are also 22 million Syrians who are good, ordinary people who basically just want the chance to lead normal lives uh, without fear of violence. Now, it seems to me that there are two strains running through uh, Syrian history uh, which are relevant to today's situation. In his book, uh, From the Holy Mountain, William Dalrymple talks about how, until relatively recently, Muslims and Christians living in villages in Syria and into what is now Turkey uh, mixed quite comfortably. You had, for example, people sharing feast days. Uh, Muslims might take their children to be blessed in churches. Uh, and I think you could argue that this reflects a provision in the Quran that, that uh, tells us not to uh, dispute with the al-Kitab, the people of the book. Uh, and I'll quote, except in the most courteous manner, and say we believe in what has been sent down to us and what has been sent down to you. Our God and your God are one. Now, it's hard to square this image with what is happening now, especially with the clash of civilizations um, <coughs> argument or drumbeat that Western governments and Western media are bringing out. But just bear in mind that we, amid all this violence, uh, over one million Sunni, and, and remember the significance of the, the divisions between, within Islam itself, but one, over one million Sunni Syrians have found refuge in places like Tartus and Latakia, which is the heartland of the Alawite regime. Um, we found Shia Sunni refugees being looked after by, in Christian villages uh, wherever, wherever possible. Now, this is a, 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 an attitude, a way of life, which is under extreme pressure, and it's Hard, it'll be hard to reconstruct this at the national level, but it seems to me that this is part of Syrians' ethos. The other strain that, uh, to me, is reflected, uh, is important, is reflected in the extreme hatred that conservative Sunni Muslims feel for the Ba'athist regime in Damascus. And I think there are many reasons for this, but they, to me, lie at the heart of the intensity of this conflict. So. In any religion, any ideology, there are different shades of opinion, including attitudes towards tolerance of diversity or difference. And so it is among the Sunni population in Syria. With hardline uh, Sunnis historically treating minority groups like Alawis, Christians, Jew, Jews, Druze, uh, Shia, with hostility. And this uh, propensity, I think, has been aggravated by what I regard as the malign influence of Saudi Arabia and its proselytizing of Wahhabi Islam. 
It's also, I think, be, it was also aggravated by the policies of the French during the mandate period, because what they did was to favour minorities as a way of trying to keep the Sunni um, <coughs> unrest under control. And so with the helping hand of French favouritism, if you like, Alois managed to escape the, the poverty-stricken areas in the hills above Latakia and Tartus um, into the army where they gained education, their political skills, and eventually uh, reached power. And so the, uh, the, the father of the current president, Hafez al-Assad, um, gained his entree into politics and gained power through that route. And at the same time as the Alawis became more, uh, and I should stress, the Alawi have, up until Hafez al-Assad, twisted the arm of the Sunni um, hierarchy in Damascus, the Alawi were regarded as one of the worst forms of her heretics in Islam. Um, but at the same time as these people were starting to emerge from, from the, the wilds of Alawi territory, the Ba'ath Party gained control, gained power in Damascus, uh, this is 1963, early 1963, at roughly the same time as they gained power in, in uh, Baghdad. And so the Alawi and the Ba'ath came together as the dominant force in Syrian politics. Now, from the point of view of conservative, um, conservative uh, Sunnis in Syria, there are many problems with this, um, with this combination. And one of these is the party's avowed secular and progressive nature. And so for a given example, but under the regimes in uh, Baghdad and Damascus, the status of women has probably been much higher than has been in any other Arab regime. Um, and this was bad enough, but I think what really upsets the, um, the con or what upset the conservatives was the Ba'ath's attempt to regularize or harmonize the status of minorities in Syria. And they did this, um, well, they, I don't think they succeeded very well, but they tried to redefine Islam and turn Islam from a religion into a sort of cultural force that could encompass everybody within it. And so everybody in Syria, it didn't matter whether they were Jewish, Druze, Alawi, whatever, were part of this uh, Islamic civilization. Uh, and, and you can see it right up until now, it, the regime is in dire straits, but its strongest supporters are from these minorities. They remain <coughs> relatively steadfast in their support of the regime, if only because they dread majority rule. But from the point on of the, the Ba'athists coming up with this sort of idea, the relationship between the government and conservative groups, and especially the Muslim Brotherhood, Ikhwan al-Muslimin, um, became poisonous. And it built up through the 1970s. When I was living in Damascus in the late 70s, there were constant reports of people being shot, blown up. Uh, next door to me was the vice president, and his guard box was blown up one night. Um, so it was, it was becoming very, very dangerous for members of the, uh, of the government. And so Hafez al-Assad in 1982 sent his troops into the town of Hamma. And I should have had a map here in case you don't know where Hamma is, but they leveled a large part of the city in an attempt to exterminate the Muslim Brotherhood. And they certainly did a very good job of eliminating it as a force in Syria. This experience, I think, has, has guided the response of the government 
and its opponents to the events of 2011. Originally, we saw relatively harmless, I suppose, demands uh, for jobs, for a more accessible political system from marginalised people, many of whom had been driven into the, to the urban centres of Damascus and Daraa and places like that um, as a result of a sustained drought in Syria. And many had also been emboldened by attempted reforms by, that Bashar al-Assad sought to bring in when he first gained power. But remembering 1982, the regime decided the only response was force, and violent force straight away. Um, but instead of collapsing under this pressure, what we saw was the, the revolt popping up all over the country, and suddenly the government was starting to lose control of, uh, of this, this movement. And very quickly after that, we saw the hard men, supported by countries like Saudi Arabia and various Gulf states, Turkey, the US. Um, with the growing involvement of those forces, the Saudis, the Iran, the Turks, etc., we saw on the other side increased involvement of the Iranians, Hezbollah from Lebanon uh, and Russia. And we now have, I think, a situation where the major powers are relatively happy to just allow the conflict, or have been anyway, allow the conflict to continue to serve their strategic interests. Iran is committed to the Assad regime for a number of reasons, um, one of which is to, gain, to maintain access to Hezbollah uh, because um, uh, it has a certain commitment to the regime. They have a long-standing treaty arrangement or alliance arrangement. Russia wants a foothold in the region. Uh, the port of Tartus is very important uh, in terms of Russian access to the Mediterranean and beyond. And I think Putin is very concerned about the contagion of Islamic um, irredentism in his own, within the Caucasus. Um, from the American point of view, I see uh, the Americans content to tie or to bog Iran down in the morass, especially while the negotiations were going on over the nuclear weapons non-nuclear weapons. Um, it would be nice to think that as a result the Americans might back away from that policy, but I don't think I can see Obama expending the political capital to change that situation before he goes. We have a landscape now littered with groups displaying various levels of largely sadistic violence. Many, not just Islamic State, claim to be campaigning for an Islamic State uh, in the region. And this is an issue that has been prominent in Arab politics since the fall of the Caliphate in 1924. Uh, many of the groups, such as the, the YPG, the Kurdish Popular People's Groups, are uh, intended basically to protect specific areas, and in this case, obviously, the Kurdish areas in the north. Um, others have got control over particular checkpoints, lucrative checkpoints or important checkpoints, which gives them a certain power. Some have uh, pretensions to, to um, uh, national influence, uh, and a lot co cooperate with other groups. Um, we, of course, have... How am I doing? I'll speak really quickly, okay. Um, we, we have the Free Syrian Army, 
this is the group that is supported by the West. Uh, it lacks control over what's going on in the on the ground. It is so politically fractious as to be virtually impotent. Um, we've had the, the farcical experience recently of some of the fighters being trained by the Americans at huge expense, being captured by Jabhat al-Nusra, which is the, the main, I think, uh, Islamist group operating in Syria, and then being released and announcing that they will never fight their brothers from Jabhat al-Nusra. Um, I don't see a lot of point in the US's attempts to degrade and to destroy um, these groups. Uh, they've had little impact so far, apart from a few notable exceptions around Erbil in Kurdistan uh, and Kobani, which was of dubious or questionable significance. Uh, what I would love to see, uh, and which I don't expect to see, is a process of patient diplomacy which uh, reflects what happened with the Iranian dispute. A coalition, a fairly fractious coalition, including Russia, cooperating even when Russia and the United States were at daggers drawn over the Ukraine and elsewhere. Um, the government is, I think, in real trouble, is failing, and so it's likely to become more accommodating uh, should a diplomatic solution be offered. It was offered before, they rejected it, uh, but now they might have a different idea. Uh, and we should bear in mind, I think, that we want to get rid of this current regime. What are we getting in its place? And at the moment, the only choice is the extremists. Um, do we have various plans on the table? Uh, Kofi Annan produced the first one in 2012 and resigned in disgust at the, the major powers' lack of interest. Uh, Lakta Brahimi produced one in the same year. Uh, and now the latest uh, negotiator de Mistura has produced one which the Security Council has endorsed and it involves working groups and working towards a national government uh, um, which would see a process of transition. Um, this effort must involve all the key parties including Iran and this has always been a big sticking point. Um, I think the Americans have to abandon their demand that Assad, his departure, be the first point because I think that's just an excuse for inaction. He's not the main problem. He's not, I think, in full control of what's going on there and he told us as, as much a couple of years ago. Uh, but we need something, something that brings various parties to the fore, enables reasonable people to, to, make, to make a stand, to be seen and heard. Um, I'm afraid, I fear that that's a long way off. Um, perhaps if the successor to Barack Obama, if the Americans were to go the way of British Labour, uh, then Bernie Saunders might have um, the political will, but even he would lack the power to do so. Thank you. gentlemen, thank you very much for joining tonight and a uh, big thank you to the Caldor Center for organizing this event. We are facing an unprecedented scale of displacement in Syria, Iraq and the wider region. Syria enters its fifth year of conflict with no end in sight. 
consequences of the situation in Syria have a regional dimension. Displacement, related fatigue in neighboring countries and instability now in particular in Iraq. The entire socio-economic fabric of the region is at risk. This crisis will define the future of the Middle East and the world at large for decades to come. This is a mega crisis and has also become a global crisis with impacts far beyond the region itself. Syrians have become the largest refugee population under UNHCR's mandate. In March 2012, there were 250,000 Syrian refugees. Today, there are over 4 million, and we foresee further increases by the end of this year. In Syria, we witness a significant deterioration in the security situation and conditions remain fluent and unpredictable. A total of 12.2 million people were in need of humanitarian assistance inside the country by mid-2015, including 7.6 million internally displaced persons. In addition, there are over 233,000 Iraqi refugees in neighboring countries. It is projected that by December 2015, the total number of Iraqi refugees seeking protection in the region will exceed 330,000, an increase of almost 100,000 in the months to come. The total number of internal dis displaced persons in Iraq is estimated at 3.2 million as at mid-2015. This figure did not include the nearly 1 million persons that remained displaced mainly in central Iraq as a result of sectarian violence in 2006. A number of assessments at country level show growing impoverishment and vulnerability levels in Syrian refugees. A high number of refugees live well below the poverty line. In Lebanon, 70% of households live below the Lebanese extreme poverty line, <coughs> an increase from 50% only in 2014. In Jordan, 86% of Syrians who are outside of refugee camps are living below the Jordanian poverty line and are rated as highly or severely vulnerable. Negative coping strategies are on the rise. The percentage of households employing crisis coping strategies across the five hosting countries has gone up from 30% in 2014 to 52% in the current year. The proportion of Syrian refugees in the region considered food insecurity or vulnerability to food insecurity has risen from 48% in 2014 to 86% in 2015. In Jordan, 25% of Syrian refugees are severely shelter vulnerable and 50% highly shelter vulnerable. And the winter is coming. In Lebanon, 55% of the refugee population live in poor shelters, in informal settlements, and substandard buildings. In Jordan, close to half of surveyed Syrian refugee families reported having a child as a breadwinner. In Iraq, three-quarters of refugee children from Syria are working to support their families. With 94% 
of the over 4 million refugees being generously hosted in Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, and Egypt, the principles of solidarity, international responsibility sharing cannot be overemphasized. The neighboring countries remain at the forefront of the crisis and continue bearing the brunt of the political, economic, social, and security spillovers of the Syria conflict. They are the top donors to the Syria crisis and are providing the global public good which they cannot and should not bear alone. Without their generosity, the immediate consequences of this conflict and the loss of life would have been unimaginable. International refugee protection is predicated on cooperation between states, which is both a fundamental principle of the international refugee regime and a practical necessity in responding to common challenges. Greater financial aid, including longer-term development and resilience-based funding, is needed to help ease the burden on neighboring states in supporting refugees. Refugees continue to need international protection and require access and admission to safety, including protection from refoulement. But there is also a need for a much stronger commitment to responsibility sharing by other countries, allowing Syrian refugees to find protection beyond the immediate neighboring region. Widening access to protection for refugees beyond the region through legal channels, including through the use of humanitarian visa, community-based sponsorships, scholarships, facilitated access to family reunification, as well as labor mobility schemes for refugees need to be further explored. Let me look for a few moment, moments at the Regional Refugee and Resilience Plan, or 3RP, as it's in short known. Despite the generous contributions received so far, the 3RP is only funded with $1.6 billion. These are 37% of the $4.5 billion of agency requirements since the appeal was launched. This leaves a gap of $2.8 billion. UNHCR's component of the 3RP is 41% funded. No country, no sector has been unaffected by the shortfalls. Jordan is, in general, only 39% funded, Lebanon 35%, Iraq only 34%. All are struggling to meet the needs of refugees and host communities. Turkey and Egypt are even harder hit with only 30% and 23% funded respectively. And that, while Turkey has so far, out of their own budgets, spent $4 billion on refugee assistance in their country. The 2016 planning process has started and with planned improvements to strengthen national ownership and leadership by host governments better articulate resilience strategies and improve monitoring and evaluation. The 2016 appeal will be published in early December 2015. For the longer term, the 3RP calls for a new aid architecture that will combine humanitarian support to refugees with development support with donors to revisit the modalities for their assistance and to consider harmonizing 
if not integrating their humanitarian and development allocations. We need more funds and more quickly. We cannot provide the most basic needs to the most vulnerable people in the region. We cannot prioritize any further. UNHCR has recently issued the Regional Winter Assistance Plan for the Syria and the Iraq situations. The plan intends to help 3.16 million Syrian and Iraqi refugees and IDPs, including through cash assistance, high thermal blankets, stoves, heating fuel, and shelter weatherproofing kits. Additional funding is urgently needed in order to meet the needs within the winter plan. Should funding not be forthcoming, severe consequences are foreseen. Here are a couple of consequences of underfunding. The progress report issued by the 3RP partners details many more consequences, both at regional and country levels. And let me only point out the second part, 752,000 Syrian refugee children are without education. That is virtually every second child that has no education and those who have the benefit of education often go to substandard arrangements but at least try to uh, continue with their thirst for education and a future for their families. These figures, I believe, speak for themselves and are a blunt reminder that more needs to be done. In fact, at the same time, much has been achieved and 3RP partners have increased their efficiencies to ensure the limited funding available is channeled to the most in need. <coughs> Cash-based interventions for food and other basic needs have been increasingly implemented to reduce overheads and transaction costs. Investment in sustainable services in camps and host communities is proving essential to bring down the medium to long-term operational costs. Examples of this include the provision of piped water and sanitation systems in camps in Jordan and Iraq. Strengthening the effectiveness of data collection systems enhances the ability to identify and assist the most vulnerable. Identifying common key indicators of possible extreme vulnerability, for example, through the vulnerability assessment framework in our Jordan operation, and then working through home visits, phone calls, and other data and systems to validate assumptions and to help provide assistance more effectively. Community-based approaches have been enhanced and new partnerships with the private sector and with development funds have been established. All this and more, which I don't elaborate at this point, is good, but more needs to be done. We hope that donors and strategic partners will act fast so as not to leave a generation of refugees behind. <coughs> Levels of vulnerability and poverty need to be curtailed and tensions between host communities and refugees diffused. Otherwise, we will see further regional destabilization and the rolling back of development gains. We cannot afford to let this happen. Thank you.
In just a few hours, the interior ministers of the EU member states will meet to discuss a proposal by the European Commission to accept their fair share of 120,000 asylum seekers currently in Italy, Greece and Hungary. Building, of course, on an existing agreement to take 32,000 asylum seekers from Italy and Greece over the next two years. Now, the numbers that would be allocated among EU member states would depend upon their GDP, population, unemployment rate, and the asylum applications that they've already processed. But the staunch refusal by member states just a few months ago to to relocate according to a mandatory quota system, 40,000 asylum seekers from Greece and Italy, which in terms of Europe's population was a very modest proposal indeed, shows the scale of divisions that now exist between European countries and the crisis of political solidarity. Ten years ago, I wrote an article in which I predicted much of what we're seeing today namely the inevitable outcome of what happens when a so-called regional system is left to national governments to implement and fails to include proper mechanisms for responsibility sharing. Now, this foresight had far less to do with my skills in fortune telling and everything to do with the writing being very clearly on the wall. Until 1986, Asylum and immigration policy had remained fairly and squarely within the domain of national governments in Europe. But with the passage of the Single European Act in 1986, which sought to create a European space free of internal controls of, of borders to realise the free movement of goods, workers, service and capital, and capital, issues about asylum seekers came to the fore as well. But it wasn't for another seven years until the entry into force of the Maastricht Treaty that the issue of asylum was transformed into one of common concern. Nevertheless, common European Union positions on asylum remained relatively underdeveloped because of the lawmaking structure in place at that time, which was based more on cooperation between member states as opposed to binding uh, pieces of supranational legislation. On the 1st of May 1999, the Treaty of Amsterdam entered into force, and this shifted immigration and asylum issues into a different domain. Now asylum law and policy could be developed through a common regional approach that would bind the member states under European law. It was thought that this would enable Europe to take a more comprehensive approach that was far less driven by state self-interest, that would also have supranational judicial controls providing a positive restraining force. But what we saw in reality was that the EU member states insisted on retaining quite a degree of national control. And so it meant that asylum law remained heavily influenced by domestic political concerns. It was in this context that the common European asylum system which we have today was devised. This was in the late 90s and the early 2000s. What it sought to do was to create, as the name implies, a common European asylum system. That is, a harmonised EU-wide approach to asylum seekers and refugees by minimising differences between the member states' law and practice 
and by ensuring that asylum seekers would be uh, or would have access to procedures that were as fair, efficient and effective as possible throughout the European Union. Regional harmonisation of refugee law is of course an important step towards consistency, predictability and just outcomes for refugees. And from one perspective, the common European asylum system is one of the best regional systems we have, at least on paper. But one only has to look at the context in which it was agreed to see why it was always flawed from the start. It's a product, product of compromise. It adopted lowest common denominator standards rather than seeking to elevate national uh, procedures and laws to those of best practice. And the law as it stands remains open to interpretation in very different ways by the 28 member states of the European Union. Perhaps most fundamentally though, it's underpinned by a really unrealistic idea that the treatment and consideration of refugees and their claims could be consistent across the European Union. And of course to admit that this wasn't possible would have undermined the very project itself. Now in the news we've heard a lot about uh, various European cities, Schengen and Dublin and, and so on, and I just wanted to illustrate what some of those terms actually mean when it comes to the legal regulation of asylum seekers and refugees in Europe. So the instrument I want to focus on here is, is, so called, is known as the Dublin regulation, and the idea of this is that an asylum seeker's claim should be processed in the very first EU country that they enter. So if an asylum seeker moves from, say, Hungary through to Germany, under the Dublin regulation, they could be sent back to Hungary. Now there is no rule of international or European human rights law that requires an asylum seeker to seek protection in the first country that they reach. Recognition within the international and European treaties, as well as successive statements uh, at UNHCR's executive committee meeting by governments reinforce that to place such an obligation uh, on asylum seekers would in turn place a very heavy burden on frontline receiving states. And this is also why a fundamental principle of refugee law is that of solidarity and responsibility sharing. Now the Dublin regulation wasn't related to entry into the EU when it was originally devised. It was designed to address a problem of the 1990s known as refugees in orbit, uh, which was essentially where you had asylum seekers and refugees being shuttled between different states saying, oh, we, it's not our responsibility. So the Dublin system was designed to try and register people in the first place they got to and then ensure that that's where they went back to if they somehow got somewhere else in between. One positive aspect of it was that it entrenched the rule that asylum seekers are entitled to have a decision on their asylum claim. But the system doesn't provide for effective sharing of responsibilities and nor was it ever intended to do so. Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill at Oxford has said that in his view, the Dublin system has made the asylum process across Europe even more bureaucratic. It's disrupted family unity, it's failed to, to respect children's rights, and it's had very little real impact on secondary movements. 
Right now, or maybe as until yesterday perhaps, Germany had suspended the operation of Dublin, as any member state can choose to do. And what Germany said was, we will accept responsibility for processing any asylum seekers that come to our borders and, and, and come into our country. And member states, as I said, already have, an uh, have a discretion to do that. Similarly, they can uh, use what's known as the humanitarian clause and consider applications from asylum seekers who have family members already in that country. It is an interesting footnote, I think, that it was actually Germany that drove proposals behind this uh, Dublin regulation um, because they wanted to limit people's access in Germany um, to the right to under their constitution to seek asylum by having these so-called safe third country rules. But as it did in the 90s with, uh, in response to Kosovar refugees, Germany is one of very few EU nations to have suspended Dublin so as to deal with refugees in very acute situations. In practice, the, Dub the Dublin regulation doesn't work a lot of the time. The illusion has, of course, been shattered not only by asylum seekers who've moved with their feet and voted with their feet, but also by the European Court of Human Rights and the Court of Justice of the European Union. And what those courts have found is that systemic flaws in the asylum procedure and reception conditions for asylum seekers in places like Greece could result in asylum seekers being exposed to inhuman or degrading treatment. So for a long time now, member states have been precluded from sending asylum seekers back to Greece. And the European Court of Human Rights recently said that in certain circumstances, Italy also exposed people to a risk of inhuman or degrading treatment because of systemic failures in reception facilities, living conditions, very, very slow procedures uh, for determining claims, uh, as well as situations where asylum seekers had been exposed to serious violence. This, of course, is why establishing a formal responsibility sharing mechanism in Europe is so important. The preamble to the Refugee Convention notes that refugee movements may place very heavy burdens on frontline states, and this is why international cooperation is required. This has been a principle reinforced over many years through successive uh, General Assembly resolutions as well as in UNHCR's meeting of states, the Executive Committee. Within Europe's own treaty, there is a principle of solidarity that surely implies the need for responsibility sharing in the asylum context as well. But what we've seen worldwide is states being very reluctant to put flesh on the bones of this principle of international cooperation and responsibility sharing. Within Europe, proposals have been put on the table repeatedly since the 1990s for a better responsibility sharing mechanism, but no proposals have ever been accepted. Over 20 years ago, Germany once again proposed a redistribution mechanism for asylum seekers in response to the Balkan crisis, but other states refused. And a decade ago, the EU Commission asked, rather rhetorically, that if burden sharing could not be successfully applied within the unique common asylum space of Europe, how could it possibly work anywhere else? 
Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill has said that for a truly regional system, we should be looking to create a regional body that can make decisions that are valid across the whole of the European Union. And he says there should also therefore be a European protection status for refugees, rather than one that is decided upon differently in the 28 member states of the EU. Surely, he says, in a regional grouping like Europe, without internal frontiers and with the same legal obligations, it's purely redundant to have 28 national refugee status determination systems operating. And further, Goodwin-Gill, together with Salim Kansezak, have proposed a financial mechanism, and not just for Europe, but that could operate globally, whereby states that are hosting large numbers of refugees could draw upon the frozen assets of refugee-producing countries like Syria to provide humanitarian assistance to the displaced. And given the really large figures that Thomas presented there about how much money Turkey has spent, I'm quite sure that that suggestion would be of great interest to the Turkish government. The attitude of European and other Western states towards asylum seekers and refugees has sometimes been described as organised hypocrisy. On the one hand, they affirm the principle of asylum while devising every conceivable mechanism to prevent asylum seekers from ever entering their territories. <coughs> as other Oxford colleagues, Alexander Betts and Jean-Francois Durieux have observed, these countries dislike of so-called uncontrolled migration still hasn't provided enough incentive for them to substantially increase the number of resettlement places that they offer to make physical responsibility sharing look like a real solution. So in my view, Europe is not facing a refugee crisis, but a political crisis that is about a lack of collective will to respond to desperate people on the move. Europe has not gone to the Middle East to help the refugees. So now the refugees are going to Europe to try to help themselves. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, yeah, I've been asked to comment on the implications um, of what's happened in the last week or so for Australian policy. Um, and in fact, last Wednesday, I was um, travelling from Sydney to Wellington with a group of uh, delegates from the Asia Pacific Refugee Rights Network to talk to people in New Zealand about practical uh, cooperation um, focused on improving conditions for refugees in Southeast Asia and South Asia. When I left Sydney, uh, there was um, the government was saying that there would be an announcement of which Australia would be proud in relation to refugee resettlement, and by the time I landed in, in Wellington, the, the news was out that uh, um, the government had agreed to take 12,000 additional um, uh, re uh, Syrian refugees through resettlement, and that provided a little challenge for the Refugee Council of Australia. We had to dust off our manual for how to produce a, a statement welcoming a government decision, which is something we had to do for some time. There, there was a precedent some years ago. When I got to New Zealand, um, there were actually also the people involved in the refugee sector, which um, is a very small refugee sector in New Zealand, but they were very 
pleased that there'd also been a, sh a slight shift in New Zealand uh, with a promise of 600 additional Syrian resettlement places over two and a half years. Now that may not seem very significant um, and also of course Australia's 12,000 places is tiny in comparison to the need. But the, the significance is that they represent shifts in political thinking in both countries. The 600 additional places in New Zealand um, represent the first increase in the refugee resettlement quota since 1987. Uh, in fact, um, the since 1987, the New Zealand quota has just gone down by 50 places. That's the only uh, direction um, the quota has gone. And of course, in Australia, um, the current government went to the 2013 election promising to cut um, the refugee and humanitarian program <coughs> by 6,250 places a year. It was a very prominent promise, if you remember, you know, and Joe Hockey um, proclaiming that uh, they'd save a billion dollars or some, some such inflated figure um, by cutting places, humanitarian places, out of Australia's um, refugee program. And of course, since the election of the government, we've seen um, a relentless pursuit of very harsh policies, um, brutally so. Um, and of course, as time has gone on, Australia's reputation has been you know, further and further reduced internationally because uh, not only of the actions but the way in which the actions have been promoted to the Australian public and to the world. Um, we've even seen at times a lack of bipartisanship um, um, beginning to emerge at politically convenient times about the resettlement program. So while there's long been political bipartisanship that Australia should have a resettlement program, uh, at times we've had coalition politicians um, subtly and unsubtly uh, criticise resettled refugees for um, the rate at which people move into the labour market, you know, the heavily heavy, supposed heavy reliance on uh, unemployment benefits, misquoting um, a Department of Immigration survey from several years ago. So I suppose I, I wasn't particularly optimistic that we were likely to see the response that we did see. Uh, from the Abbott government. And of course in May um, when Indonesia and Malaysia and to some extent Thailand were asking for international assistance with the resettlement of Rohingya refugees, we had that famous nope, nope, nope response from our Prime Minister, which was sig a significant signal to the world but was also a significant signal to the, the region, the Asia-Pacific region, that Australia was not interested in the sharing of responsibility on a, on a common problem within our region. The Asia-Pacific Refugee Rights Network delegates who were travelling with me in Australia and New Zealand actually saw that um, comment from Prime Minister Abbott and the May 29th meeting in Bangkok is quite significant as a sign that Australia was actually more marginalised than it had been well, probably you know, in, for 30 years or more. Um, in international discussions about practical solutions for refugees. That uh, meeting that Thailand, the Thai government hosted in Bangkok, Australia was pretty much reduced to being an observer on the fringes of the meeting, rather than, as we've seen through the Bali process, being centrally involved um, as a co-convener of international meetings discussing um, <coughs> people movement issues. Also, um, I suppose I wasn't optimistic that we were going to see uh, much movement 
um, on resettling Syrian refugees because for the past 10 months Philip Ruddock um, and Chris Hayes, a Labor MP, have been calling for uh, safe haven visas for Syrian refugees after they visited um, the Middle East in November last year. And uh, that call, and while you know, we certainly uh, felt that any um, offer should be permanent rather than temporary of people um, uh, given an opportunity to come to Australia, I mean, that call was just basically being ignored. So I think what we saw was a pretty significant shift in public mood. I mean, I think everyone in the room has been concerned for some time about um, you know, the terrible treatment of people who've come to Australia to seek asylum. And you know, we've all heard um, in appalling detail, um, allegation after allegation after allegation and evidence, you know, evidence building on evidence of shocking treatment of people who've come to Australia to seek protection from persecution. And I think there's been a growing sense of anger amongst probably 30% of the population, you know, who just find this very this uh, behaviour from an Australian government very, very hard to stomach. But it didn't appear to go much beyond that 30% of concerned people. I suppose one of the shifts that we've started to see uh, in recent times has come from Mike Baird, a Premier here in New South Wales, um, who, um, yeah, has on three occasions um, since the beginning of this year um, made some significant uh, announcements or comments in relation to people seeking refuge. The first was the announcement of transport concessions in New South Wales, which was um, uh, you know, quite a significant announcement, even though the measure itself in fiscal terms was, was small, but very significant for asylum seekers. Um, then signalling that New South Wales was prepared to get involved in the Safe Haven Enterprise Visa Scheme, which of course in itself is problematic, but from a, from a state perspective, it was a clear signal that um, New South Wales was prepared to uh, get involved in something which ha had the possibility of you know, some positive outcomes for vulnerable people. And then in much more recent times, he's been advocating for um, a significant signal from the federal government that it was prepared to assist Syrian refugees following uh, the publicity which really resulted from the publication of, you know, globally of the photo of uh, young Island Kurdi, who um, everyone has seen his image uh, washed up on the beach. Since that, over the last two weeks, um, yeah, we've seen all sorts of unusual manifestations of public interest. And um, on the weekend, uh, AFL fans may have noticed that uh, the North Melbourne Football Club ran through the banner uh, which said, North Melbourne Football Club welcomes refugees, um, which was a pretty clear signal of, uh, you know, to the footy heartland, um, you know, that there are people who are standing for values which, you know, for quite some time have been politically marginalised in Australia. So I think um, it's very difficult to look at the decision last Wednesday from the Abbott government in a particularly negative light. I mean, there are some inflated claims um, being made, of course. Um, it's not quite as generous um, as it might appear, even though it is a generous step. And of course, anyone who can, who thinks about the decision in 2013 to cut the program by 6,250 places will note that the 12,000 places is actually 500 less than the places already cut out of the program uh, since the government came into office. And um, there were um, 
there have been more generous programs in the past. In 1949-50, much more generous programs in the past. 1949-50, uh, there were 89,199 uh, humanitarian arrivals just during one financial year, which in per capita terms now would be the equivalent of us having an annual intake of a quarter of a million refugees, which is a little hard to imagine. Um, and similarly, the years before and after 1949-50, we saw between 34,000 and 37,000 refugees arrive in one year. In 1980-81 and 1981-82, we saw between 21,500 and 22,000 um, refugees come. And of course, in global terms, um, the, you know, the, the effort in Australia um, can't compare with what we're seeing in per capita terms in Lebanon and Turkey. Um, and even in countries such as um, Sweden, Switzerland, Norway, Denmark, Netherlands and Belgium, um, are in, when you look at the numbers of refugees given protection through resettlement or through an asylum process, uh, they have been significantly ahead of Australia, a point that we've been trying to make again and again. But I think when we look at what will happen, um, Australia will do well um, in resettling the refugees who will come. Um, I've, as was mentioned in my bio, I've been involved in uh, the global dialogue on refugee resettlement for eight or nine years and have had the opportunity to hear a lot about and to see some of the settlement support programs in other countries for resettled refugees. And I, I don't think it's um, uh, idle boasting to say that um, Australia's support for people who get permanent visas and enter the country um, is the equal of any in the world. In our office at the Refugee Council, we've actually had to get some additional help in the last few days to handle the phone calls of people offering assistance, um, which, and we're far from alone in that. So there's a lot of community goodwill, um, and also the settlement sector in Australia has the capacity, and I'm sure will uh, step up to the to the mark as they did um, when the program was increased by 6,250 places at no notice in, um, in late 2012. And also our, our capacity to absorb 12,000 additional Syrian refugees, um, uh, well, we're well within our capacity. In uh, the, the last financial year for which migration figures are available, 2013-14, 240,000 or just under 240,000 permanent visas were issued. So even if these 12,000 refugees were resettled in the same year as our 11,000 quota, we're not entirely sure yet, it would still be less than 10% um, of annual migration. So I don't think the country is going to be stretched. Um, there are quite a few questions that we've got you know, for government about the practicalities um, and we'll be pursuing them in different ways um, over coming weeks you know, to find out what visas people will be coming on, what expectations there will be of community organisations to be involved in resettlement, to what extent family members are going to be pressured into paying some of the, uh, the costs of resettlement um, through you know, the community proposal pilot. Or, or a similar scheme, um, and also yeah, what sort of resources are going to be available. Um, but it sounds positive, and um, yeah, for us, as I mentioned, it was an unusual experience to be able to put out a statement which was unequivocally accepting um, a government decision. Of course, you know, it's small in comparison to the scale of the need that we've seen, but there's a capacity um, with sufficient community uh, uh, support and sufficient community advocacy for Australia to continue to do this uh, you know, for a number of years and also to advocate for other countries to do the same. Thank you.
Well, thank you very much to all of our panellists for your fascinating insights into uh, the origins and future prospects uh, of the Syria crisis, the implications for the Middle East, uh, the way that Europe is dealing with it, and, and the Australian response to the Syria crisis. Um, one of the uh, comments that was made um, by Thomas was that this crisis would define the future of the Middle East, but also beyond. And uh, I thought it would be interesting for us to explore what some of the implications of this crisis are for refugee protection and the refugee protection regime. And perhaps we could start with Thomas. You've worked with UNHCR through many of the turning points uh, for the organisation uh, and the um, High Commissioner for Refugees, Antonio Guterres, has now described Syria crisis as the greatest humanitarian crisis of our time. So what do you see as the implications of this more broadly for the international refugee protection regime? I think when we look at the reality in which refugees find themselves, of course, that reality is extremely bleak. And we are discussing tonight a very important situation, that of Syrian and Iraqi refugees, but that unfortunately is only one situation, even for a mega crisis, but you look around uh, uh, the globe and you find many other crises that are very desperate as well, whether you look at South Sudan, whether you look at uh, uh, Central African Republic, uh, whether you look at Nigeria and other conflicts that uh, are sprinkled around the globe. We have reached a record number of 60 million displaced persons, and that I think is where the stretching point might be seen to be coming. And there is only one solution while we are helping those 60 million to survive and be protected with as much dignity and as effectively as we can that the root causes of the conflicts and the crises are addressed, which in a situation of an absence of a global security system, I think, will be only in some time to come. So the outlook is rather desperate, but I think we also see many great examples in such an exceptionally desperate situation where we see politicians stepping up, taking leadership in a positive manner, where you see people stepping up to understand why others have to flee, and that they have a commitment, not only in theory, but by doing the right things for individual refugees who are coming. And I think with these developments, we have an opportunity to probably have a breakthrough in a very different manner and to see that the principles that uh, are very nicely articulated in so many conventions and laws in different parts of the world are genuinely reaffirmed, reaffirmed by also then seeing that we need to invest in these situations and that we can have benefits and that if we do the right things today with refugees, they can be the actors, they can be the ones who help rebuild, stabilize these countries and regions again. And I think all of this crisis now has an opportunity that people have a different take and a different perspective and turn that into a different reality. And Jane, from a legal perspective, uh, what do we see for, uh, as the implications of this? Does it highlight particular gaps or perhaps even strengths in uh, the international refugee legal uh, uh, architecture? Thanks. Yes, I mean I think very often that the blame is put squarely at the you know the foot of the refugee convention, as though somehow this international treaty has failed to protect the world's refugees. And I think that's a very unfair thing 
to do because, as I explained through my presentation, the problem is not so much with, uh, and certainly not with the international legal principles that, that govern protection, the problem is with governments actually implementing those principles and doing what they have voluntarily undertaken to do. The vast majority of the world's countries are signatories to the Refugee Convention. There are also regional instruments that they're, um, you know, in Africa, in Latin America, Europe, of course. And I think the, the mobilising that we've seen in recent weeks of the general public and this sudden, it's like a light bulb's gone on, of the awareness of that's what it means to be a refugee. I think we really need to um, build on that so that pressure then is put back into the political space um, to get countries to live up to these obligations and to actually help those you know, poor, desperate people that we've been seeing images of every night now for, for several weeks. And I should say too that, you know, of course, it's not as though this crisis kind of came out of nowhere. Um, it's been a very, very long uh, time that people have been on the move. But that's all right. If people are aware of it now, let's you know let's grasp hold of that and, and make some positive change. Well, on that, perhaps we could go to Paul. Um, you might need to pull the microphone a bit closer to you there. But um, <coughs> to ask, I mean, you, you talked about you know the very positive, surprisingly positive developments in the last couple of weeks. Um, is this could this be a turning point for um, the refugee conversation in Australia? And um, if so, what do you think would need to be done to keep that momentum going? Yeah, I mean, I think it is, and and I, just as I was walking back, I was thinking I actually haven't <laughs> spoken about Australian policy on refugees like that for, you know, quite a long time. Um, so it is unfamiliar territory for us all because it, you know the, it has been unrelentingly negative, you know, in, in terms of the political debate about refugees for for some time. Um, but yeah, I think there is a, a real shift in the public mood, um, and you know, I'll practical willingness of a lot of people to, to assist. Um, so, um, you know, I've long felt that, uh, you know, the probably the largest group in the Australian population are, you know, probably the 40% in the middle who are fence-sitters, you know, who, who are not politically active, but, you know, very much politically active, um, you know, who shy away from controversy and will follow whatever the... Um, you know, the accepted political wisdom of the time is. And so where we've been concerned about um, a terrible treatment of people seeking asylum but been up against uh, the policies of the two major parties, it's very hard to win over that 40% of people who are more focused on, you know, on work, on education for their families, getting their kids, you know, to sport on the weekends, you know, caring for, uh, you know, family members or whatever, to actually get them interested in, and engaged. But I think this... Um, the Seeing a human face, uh, sadly, um, to the Syrian crisis in a way that hasn't been, um, you know, come to the notice of the Australian population or the population of many countries of the world, including New Zealand, um, really has, sh at least temporarily, um, shifted thinking. And I think uh, it, offer it offers an opportunity for those of us um, who, who want to see Australia engaging um, in support of refugees in a very different way gives us something to build on. Um, yeah, so I'm yeah, feeling much more optimistic you know, than I was um, a week or two ago. Um, 
Well, we did also hear about the fact that, of course, uh, while it's positive um, that we've had this announcement of, of uh, support for those who are going to be resettled in Australia, it is very small compared to the global numbers and that 94% um, of Syrian refugees are being hosted in the region. Um, so, Anthony, what do you see as being, I guess, the ways in which um, it would be necessary for countries such as Australia to be supporting um, the, those countries that are bearing, I guess, the greatest responsibility uh, for hosting Syrian refugees? Uh, well, I think uh, Thomas commented, made one point in his presentation, which is financial. Uh, winter is coming and winter in that area is significant. And so people do need uh, protection from the elements, they need the food and that sort of thing. Um, I think also we, we demonstrated when we were on the Security Council that we have the capacity to, um, to drag people in, diff with differing views into some degree of harmony. I don't want to, over, you know, to exaggerate that, but um, I was at a meeting uh, dealing with refugee issues in Beirut um, well, a year or so ago now. Uh, with the UN um, uh, Special Coordinator um, on Humanitarian Affairs. And his comment was that the biggest challenge for him was to get the Security Council to take humanitarian issues, including refugees, seriously. Because they were obsessed with the security side of things. Uh, and he trying to get these people to focus on it. Now, you know, we're not on the Security Council now, obviously, but we still have the capacity, if we want, to get in there and start um, pushing, prodding people. I understand, I haven't been able to follow it up yet, but the, the government is, for example, leading uh, in negotiations with Iran over how we might ease Bashar al-Assad out of power to come up with some sort of political solution there. And you know, that's the sort of role we could play, which is beyond the financial and, and no, I guess the obvious reason. Great. Well, we'll thank you, everyone. And we'll now um, open the floor to questions from the audience. There are two roving mics, so if you have a question, please raise your hand. Um, just a reminder that this is being recorded, and a request also to uh, keep your questions brief so that we can take as many as possible. We'll take a batch of questions at a time before turning to the panel for answers. Thanks so much for... Um great presentation tonight. It's been wonderful. Um, I'd just like to pick up on what Paul said in terms of, I guess, changing attitudes in Australia. <coughs> and, uh, you know, we've watched this space for a long time. But how do we galvanise that, that face of that young refugee and turn it into those asylum seekers or people seeking asylum in mandatory detention? I mean, the government isn't going to let those Syrians um, come into Australia. So... <coughs> while it's a small win or a small victory, where, where can we go with this debate to humanise these faces and people coming by boats, which I think has you know, been incredibly divisive? Thank you. Um, I guess my question comes from um, something I've read about the Australian Democrats running policy is to cut the uh, skilled migrant scheme in half or more than and be able to increase our humanitarian intake by more than 20,000 people. Um, I guess I'm wondering how you feel the um, 
soon-to-be Prime Minister-elect Mr. Turnbull may uh, react to a suggestion of that variety and how that may affect how we take people in and how fair that would be to kind of to Syrian refugees when we already have so many displaced people uh, waiting for processing. Um, there have been contradictory statements in the media over the past week about what is or is not being done by the Gulf states in order to receive and host refugees. Some statements are that they have done nothing and have received no one. Um, others are that they have received hundreds of thousands. What's the truth? Um, right. I guess my question is probably directed mainly towards Anthony. I was just wondering what you see in the future for the states of Syria and Iraq, whether they can survive this conflict, and also the implications for Turkey and a Kurdish state. We might turn to the panel. I think the first two questions may be directed towards Paul. Yeah. Uh, one is about how um, the current movement of support for, for refugees can be turned towards uh, other aspects of Australia's policy and also um, around cuts to the uh, skilled migration um, quotas. Yeah. Um, I suppose I don't have the, the, the uh, <laughs> perfect answer for how we you know, humanise uh, asylum seekers who've come by boat um, and, and uh, get the same, you know, level of, of public support for them as for refugees being resettled. But I think there are some possibilities with um, the, uh, you know, the movement of people onto temporary protection visas, you know, people who are being found to be refugees. I think it will be, as they move into different communities, um, their status as people who need protection from persecution has been recognised by the Australian government. So, you know, you think the threshold for that is going to be reasonably high. So um, I, I think it will uh, be up to our organisation and others of, uh, of a similar mind to, to build the case that there is, uh, that their situation uh, is very similar, pretty much the same as people who have been resettled. Um, and I think one of the things that uh, you know we've seen over the years is that, particularly in regional communities, um, the response to individuals um, you know is very very positive. In fact, it's one of the things that's amazed me over the years is to see you know campaigns by people in particular towns to uh, you know for the immigration minister not to send somebody who's breached every migration law in the country uh, home because you know they're one of us. So not even people who are who have an asylum claim or anything like that, the people who've you know, been part of the town for a while and, and, and are known. So I think in regional Australia, that personal connection is really important. Um, one of the you know, strange um, consequences of safe haven enterprise visa will be that it will actually encourage people to move into the sorts of communities where they're more likely to be known by a broader uh, cross-section of Australian society. So I think that does offer some real possibilities. Um, but also, you know, the... Um, yeah, I mean, depending on what direction things go politically, I mean, even what direction the coalition chooses to go, um, you know, I think it's up to our organisation and others to be making the case politically, um, even publicly and behind the scenes, for a softening of um, 
of the approach because I mean you have to end up you have to ask yourselves what what has actually been achieved by the harshness the harsh treatment of people at the moment and I think it actually is playing a role in um, undermining political confidence um, in the current government so I think it's possible even to make a, a political argument to those who are interested just in votes that um, you can actually go beyond the point um, that uh, Australian you know the main group of Australians in the middle, the, the fence sitters, are actually prepared to stomach. Um, in terms of skilled migration versus refugees, it, it's um, uh, yeah, it's always interested to me that um, you know there, there are so many people who come on skilled visas actually don't end up in the the work for you know the profession for which they've actually been brought to Australia. Um, you know, sometimes joke that I won't get in a taxi in Sydney or Melbourne unless the the driver has a master's degree. Um, but the, you know, and clearly one of the um, yeah one of the aspects of um, Australia's skilled migration program, which actually deserves further investigation, is um, whether or not it's actually meeting the expectations of skilled migrants. Um, and you know, if if a lot of uh, people with high-level skills are actually working um, in semi-skilled or unskilled jobs, um, then of course it does open up the possibility that people with a well-founded fear of persecution uh, could be encouraged and supported to to fill similar labour gaps in the market. I think I don't know. My, my gut feeling is that um, there are more semi-skilled and unskilled gaps in the labour market than we're often uh, led to believe. Um, so I think there is the possibility of certainly I don't think we would necessarily um, be ready to advocate for a significant cut in the skilled migration program but certainly um, where the refugee and humanitarian program in recent years has been sitting at less than seven percent of overall migration to Australia I think the case for it to be increased to 15 percent of migration and we've had proportions significantly higher than that in the past uh, you know I think that's pretty strong. And uh, the next two questions, uh, perhaps Anthony uh, may wish to respond to. One was uh, about the response of Gulf states to Syrian refugees and also the future of Syria and Iraq. Yeah, um, I think, Thomas, you might be able to help as well with some of the, the statistics. But I think the, the Gulf countries have been reasonably, reasonably positive in, in financial terms, that they have provided probably more than some of the other countries who've com committed and not met their, their commitments. Um, their performance, in, 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 if it's a matter of definition to an extent. So what we're talking about is refugees as opposed to people who are allowed into Saudi Arabia or somewhere on a work visa. Um, if you look at the populations of the Gulf states, the population of the nationals in all of those states apart from Saudi Arabia is very small. The overwhelming uh, population is from the subcontinent, from Philippines, or wherever. Those are people who are easy to kick out if you don't want them. Well, at least theoretically it is, but they are. Um, if you start getting in a bunch of Arabs who are not the same, but they are Arabs and they speak the same language and there's a very emo strong emotional issue involved in dealing with them. So if you bring them in with, as refugees, you, you start to create a problem. Do you start to put your own uh, identity as a Qatari or an Emirati or a, an Omani or whatever at risk? Uh, and so I think there's, I'm not trying to excuse what they're doing, but I think there is a, a reason behind what they're, uh, why they're reacting the way they are. 
So uh, I, I think it's going to, unlikely that they're ever going to budge on this issue of refugees as such. Uh, should I answer the second one? Then maybe come in if you wanted to. But um, the future of Iraq and Syria, um, and then the issue of um, Turkey and, and a Kurdish state. Um, look, I still have some sort of, I don't know why it's a matter of faith, I don't know that it's all that important necessarily, but I, I, there is an element of tenacity in the state structures that were created after the Versailles Conference and uh, as a result of the, the mandate, etc. And there is an, an element to which Syrians are different from Iraqis, etc. I mean, they open their mouths, they sound different. So that, you know, there are some forces there encouraging the, the maintenance of roughly the same sort of borders. On the other hand, Islamic State, for example, I think is around for a long time. I can't see it vanishing any day soon. So you've got this thing coming cutting across the top of the country. Um, it, it all depends, I suppose, on the nature of some sort of political deal that may one day come out of all of this, uh, which is a bit of a non-answer. Maybe saying I don't know. <laughs> um, as far as Turkey is concerned in all of this, um, we none of us here would be uh, aware of the concept of a Kharki election. But that's what Mr. Erdogan is, I think, on about uh, with his attacks on the Kurds um, and, and some of the, the stuff that's been going on there. And he has an election coming up reasonably soon. Um, when you talk about a Kurdish state, we're talking about a whole lot of different things here. Are we talking about northern Iraq, which the Turks could probably live with uh, because I think they already dominated economically and in many ways. Um, are we talking about that great big lump of Kurds in the southeast of Turkey? Then we're talking about a very different situation because the Turks are very, very strong in terms of maintaining the Kurdish state. Uh, and that's something that really bedevils the relationship with the Kurds. Um, and if we're talking about a state in northern Syria. It's hard to see it being viable. Um, but again, I think the Turks regard that group as too closely associated with their PKK opponents, the the, um, the radical arm of Kurdish nationalism inside Turkey. Um, so I can't see the Turks encouraging those, those two manifestations of it. Um, the Turks I think are managing the, the overall refugee thing reasonably well, although I wonder whether the flow of refugees from southwest Turkey is sort of a blind eye being turned to it. Their role in the conflict has been very um, ambiguous. Uh, they deny it strenuously, but I, when I was in Istanbul, when I was overseas, I, was, I met some Christians from Aleppo these blokes were going across the border trading and then crossing the front line in Aleppo trading. And then they found it much more difficult because the Turks had handed over control of the border to uh, that particular area to uh, the Al Nusra front. Now, that's not the Turks then being difficult, it's, allow it's using a proxy. So they're playing a very um, complex game in all of this, I think. I don't know if you wanted to add anything. Yeah. Um, 
very unfortunately not a very good statistician, but I have colleagues who are excellent ones, <laughs> and they publish their reports uh, regularly uh, on our website. Uh, so if you want to have a look there, I'm sure you'll find the correct answers, at least reasonably up to date. We'll go for one more round of questions to give a chance for some more. Everyone here. Um, perhaps I'll ask Thomas to stay out of the answer to this question, but to what extent would a safe zone, quasi no-fly zone, uh, uh, reduce the refugee numbers? My name is Joyce, and I'd like to make one announcement and one question. With announcement, uh, currently we are organizing refugee talks that support from Refugee Council, that's both in Parramatta and also in King's Cross, and we have some flyers uh, outside as announcement. Hopefully we can change people's hearts and then change the, their minds. And uh, my question is um, toward um, uh, Professor Jim McAdam. I'm very, very agree with you. Uh, you talk about um, the country, Europe, they are facing the political crisis, not, not the refugee crisis. So could you like, uh, talk, talk more about on that? And also, so what do you regarding the, the, the South, South, South Asia and, and Southeast Asia and, the, and, and the Australia for this re region? Because Australia plays an important role in this region. How could we avoid in the, in the near future to avoid the, the political crisis? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, hello. Thank you for a very interesting lecture and discussion. Uh, the Syrian crisis is still going on and people are still in journey in order to become a citizen of a nation. But their real problem starts once they are settled into a particular particular nation. Because as it happened in the Indian partition, about 10 million people were interchanged from Pakistan to India, India to Pakistan. And within the refugee camps there were problems like uh, disease, sexual abuse, child abuse, theft, and so many other problems. So similarly, I mean, uh, once these people are settled to, into a country, so what are the uh, measurements or the policy which has been, which, which, which is to be adopted by the governments or the, or the policy makers? How are they going to deal with all these internal, uh, internal struggles or problems within the camp? Thank you. Oh, sorry, okay. Okay, thank you. Uh, Anthony Zui, University of New South Wales. I was wondering if one of the panel members could comment on what geopolitical or other interests are served by underfunding UNHCR, World Food Programme, and other UN organizations that are seeking to respond at least to the immediate um, crisis and basic needs um, in, in the region. Who's, whose interests are served by that? Thank you. Um, so the first question uh, related to the consequences of safe zones. Um, Anthony, is that something you'd like to respond to? Uh, yeah, the safe zone concept has been around for a while. Um, the Turks were very keen on it. Um, the Americans were not. And when it was announced that the two of them had agreed that Turkey would 
become involved in attacking Islamic State uh, and sort of as a quid pro quo there would be a um, safe zone set up. The Americans denied that. Um, I think the concern is that you set up a safe zone and in this context, and it's different from northern Iraq through the 90s, uh, that Islamic State or Chapata Nasra or somebody like that will just move into the area and so that then you have either a captive population or you create more refugees from that zone. So it's, it's, not, a, it's not an idea that is, has had much uh, favour um, since it was first uh, broached by Erdogan. The next question was directed towards Jane um, to elaborate on the idea of uh, there being a political a crisis, uh, a crisis of political will rather than a refugee crisis or a crisis of numbers and also in the prospects for regional cooperation in the Asia-Pacific. Um, yes, well, I think, I mean, a lot of the elements of the political crisis I sketched out in my presentation, but, I mean, one that really strikes me that I didn't have a chance to go into was the fact that in Europe, there was um, an instrument called the Temporary Protection Directive that was created precisely for the kind of situation we're seeing now, where Europe is faced with a mass influx of, of people, um, and essentially that would allow protection to be provided very quickly to people on a temporary basis to ensure that their basic needs were being met. Um, you didn't have to go through individual refugee status determination and um, there still had to be a proviso that people could apply for asylum if they still needed it after the initial sort of temporary uh, period had gone. But the understanding was that actually a lot of people at some point would be able to return home. Now, the problem, of course, with this is that it wasn't self-executing. It required um, member states to agree to trigger it. And it's barely been discussed, I think, because we can see that member states are simply not willing to activate a mechanism like that at the moment. So what we've seen being resorted to instead is these ad hoc measures, um, some countries like Germany exerting incredible leadership. Um, and I think you know, one thing that Merkel has done very well is to simply say, we're, we're not even engaging in dialogue with the far right on this. If you are going to disrespect the human dignity of people in your views, we just don't want a bar of it, and I think that's been extremely important. Um, what what confounds, I find confounding, though, is that countries like Hungary um, have, seem to have forgotten their very recent history and the fact that in 1956 the Refugee Convention was extended de facto to them by the rest of Europe, even though they didn't formally come within the provisions of that instrument. Europe said, well, of course we've got to protect these people who are fleeing from Hungary, and they did. And so I find it, um, as I say, somewhat astounding, but also very disappointing that countries like Hungary are taking the view that they are. When it comes to our own region, I mean, we're talking about a very, very different context, um, but I think that's something to be mindful of, the fact that in our own region we don't have um, a lot of common... Um, legal traditions, nor a lot of countries that are signatories to the relevant international instruments. But then nor do I think what we're trying to devise here is something along the lines of Europe with 
collapsed internal borders and, and, and common standards. That's not the kind of conversation we're having in this part of the world around regional cooperation and protection. It's about trying to enhance the protection space, um, listening to the concerns of countries in the region and not simply imposing an Australian vision on the rest of our neighbours. And on that, um, the Refugee Council of Australia has produced an excellent discussion paper on, uh, on regional cooperation in the Asia-Pacific, and I believe copies of that are out um, on the table outside, if you'd like to grab one, or if you're watching the video afterwards, uh, it's available on the Refugee Council of Australia website. Um, if I might direct the last two questions uh, to Thomas. Um, one, uh, how, do, um, how do we ensure that sufficient standards of protection um, and basic needs of refugees are met um, in exile? And um, what are the consequences and implications of the um, vast underfunding uh, that, we're, that you described in your presentation? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I well, I think the first question is a very broad one. Uh, let me just probably try and see uh, how to give a short answer. I think a lot of the protection challenges for refugees that we see once they have managed to flee and then are in a country of refuge stem from the fact that uh, they are in a rather artificial lifestyle. Very often because in an emergency there are not so many choices with large-scale uh, operations, we have to start to build refugee camps and that is a good initial response sometimes, but if then there is not a transition to something more of normalcy, I think through the artificial nature of these camps, through the idea of handouts being given, assistance being extended, you get a downward spiral, sometimes just in terms of uh, somebody being a human being who feels respected or not, sometimes in terms of traditional protection mechanisms of communities not coming together well enough because of the artificial arrangements. And this is where I think we have to recognize all of that in addition to what we normally do, put much more emphasis on really empowering the refugee populations themselves, bringing them together as much and as quickly as possible with host communities and making sure that the normalcy is there that would normally then ensure the protection whether it's children, elderly, women, or others. With regard to the other question, the geopolitical interests, I'm not quite sure whether I can give you an answer there, but uh, my usual suspicion is if it's uh, a question of conspiracy or not so great competence, usually it falls on the latter. <laughs> and I think this is what we can probably see in that area as well to some extent. And let me just give you two quick points here. We have been discussing actually for a long time, but again, more specifically over the last year or so, what is known as the relief to development gap. You have very substantive funding for development activities, but re relatively humble, and as we see, extremely humble in many situations, uh, financial resources when it comes to the response there that you could describe as relief. And not only is it not balanced at all or you know, in great disproportion, a lot of the activities that would fall under the relief activity are not synchronized with the development activities. And I think just by not even spending one dollar more but by coordinating these things better, 
by making sure that there is a link between what we need to do immediately in an emergency to make sure people are protected, they have an immediate opportunity to survive with decency, that that is then put together with other longer term activities. And I think there is now gradually a growing insight that that review is imperative. The other element, I think, is the unfortunate fact that in a lot of these crises, people exactly think this will be over soon. And I can't remember in how many refugee situations I was talking to those who came within the first months. And everybody tells you, whether it's in Liberia, whether it's any country, we thought three, four, five, six weeks later, and we would be home again. And unfortunately, that seems to be a bit uh, human nature to be overly positive and overly, overly uh, enthusiastic about uh, these desperate situations. And that's what we see as well when we talk to governments in many situations and others, that there is not the longer term foresight that we need to invest. We need to invest in regional stability, security, the creation of good governance and all of these good things today not in a year or five or ten, and where we then pay billions of dollars for peacekeeping groups, if we can start investing in these children today, that they have adequate education, not only formal education, but that they understand what good leadership is, what good accountability means, all the fundamental values that we want to see reflected there again, if we don't start investing today, we'll pay more later, and we'll miss out on enormous opportunities. And this is, I think, where we have to make sure everybody keeps a longer-term perspective because, clearly, these problems are not going away soon and the opportunity to invest is now. Thank you. We do need to bring our event to a close this evening, so please join me in thanking all of our panellists for their excellent presentation. Uh, we would also very much like to thank Allens uh, for hosting this event this evening and particularly Trieste Corby and Dennis Smith for your assistance. Um, and just briefly before uh, we end, just an announcement that um, our next uh, big event is our Caldor Centre Annual Conference. It will be taking place uh, on the 20th of November. Um, our keynote speaker is Erica Feller, the former Assistant High Commissioner for Protection for, from UNHCR. Um, and we will be focusing on regional protection. Um, further details are on our website, where you can also sign up to our mailing list, which we would strongly encourage you to do for updates on uh, recent developments in uh, refugee issues in Australia and beyond, but also for events such as these. Um, and finally, it just remains for me to thank all of you for coming and for your participation in this evening's event, and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you. <laughs>